the Garu society bears some semblance to that of the humans, although they will of course strongly deny it. Individual Garu may hold positions of influence in their septs, councils of elders form basic government, and septs are simply communities formed around a valuable resource, the cairns in this case. They create art, they sing and celebrate, wage war and mourn their dead. In truth, because the Garu find so many of their own kind from human society, they will inevitably leave their mark upon their culture, whether it be through new forms of expression, or new ways to interpret the litany and to punish those who break it. Previously we discussed the first seven laws of the litany, and now we shall proceed with the last six, after which we will take a closer look at what manners of punishment is done to those who break these rules. Respect those beneath ye. All are of Gaia. Few laws have been as thoroughly reinterpreted and blatantly ignored as this one. The Guru are creatures of Gaia and need then to understand that their duty is just one of the many important ones done in her name. But they are prideful creatures, these warriors of Gaia. In the beginning they understood well the concept behind this law and respected the other servants of the mother. Yet as time went by and as their might became obvious, the Guru felt it became less important to heed the words of any but their own kind. After all, they were the mightiest of Gaia, so why then should they listen to the bears, or the ravens, or the spiders? And let us not speak of the humans, weak, pathetic little sacks of flesh. The Impergium and the War of Rage came about because the Guru thought themselves more clever and more capable than the other pharaoh and the humans so far beneath them that they deserved only death. In their folly, the Garu unbalanced all of creation, and many of the changing breeds were wiped out, their important task left forsaken. Even between the Garu, this law is often ignored. Many tribes nitpick, questioning the definition of what respect actually means, and the Bonars, often considered the lowest of the tribes, laugh at the concept of this so-called respect. Wherever it is, they haven't seen any of it. Yet this is one of the most important laws, because without the humility it enforces, the Guru are quick to forget themselves and may fall victim to their own hubris, as in the past, with dire consequences. This law helps the Guru swallow their pride and earn allies, a woefully needed resource in these dark times. The Veil Shall Not Be Lifted Humanity must not know of the existence of the Guru, and never before has this been so relevant. In ages past, when communication between villages was sparse, and when not even the most well-trained soldiers could muster much resistance against a frenzying werewolf, it was easy to tidy over any breaches against this part of the litany. But in the modern night, digital media and recordings, horrific weaponry, and the many tendrils of the worm in governments and private industries all mean that the Guru must exercise utmost caution. The greatest tool of the Guru in this matter is the delirium. Because of the impergium, a deeply rooted fear of werewolves is ingrained into humanity. Thus, most of them will fall into a state of catatonic fear, or overwhelming terror, whenever they see one of the Guru in their crinos form. Yet this is not true for all of humanity, and recording devices still operate quite efficiently regardless of its wheeler's mental state. No tribes take this law lightly, and while they may have some leniency with pups who don't know better, enforcing this law ultimately means that humans may have to be killed for the greater good, something that rarely sits right with most guru, especially human-born. 
This is where many of the Garou differ in opinion, however, with certain hardliners sparing no lives in order to preserve their secrecy, while more humane tribes, like the Children of Gaia, might instead try to find some way to discredit or cover up the leak, willing to go to pretty great lengths in order to spare innocent lives. Should their existence be leaked to the enemy, however, few Garou would think twice about coming down on them like the Vengeance of Gaia herself. Do not suffer thy people to tend thy sickness. Just as the previous law, this one has undergone quite a change since it was first implemented. In ages past, it was quite unlikely that any Garou would live long enough to grow infirm or weak. The werewolves are naturally quite resilient to most diseases, and their violent lifestyle tend to not make longevity a likely outcome. Despite this, if a Garou warrior ever reached an age where they could no longer fight, they would either head off into the wild on their own for one last glorious stand, or they would be torn apart by their own packmates to be spared the indignity of slowly withering away. Naturally, this mentality does not rhyme well with human empathy and culture. Over time, and as Hamid Garou began to outnumber the lupus breed, human customs would be adopted, including the veneration of elders and the care for the sick. Often this would prove beneficial to the Guru as well, as wisdom and cunning generally are traits independent of one's ability to fight, after all. The various tribes all have their own approach to this law, of course. The children of Gaia would never wish to see any of their old or infirm be abandoned, often growing to great lengths to aid them in their suffering, while a more martially inclined tribe such as the Geta Fenris might send them off on an impossible task, leaving a dent in the Wyrm's forces and going out with a roar of defiance. Still others may eschew any sympathy whatsoever and keep to the old traditions, giving their elders the choice of honorable death or to be killed by their own. The leader may be challenged at any time during peace. Peace is a difficult term to define, especially to the Guru who, by their very nature, would seem to always be at war. After all, the Wyrm does not grow any weaker, and, many less savory leaders in the Garou nation would argue, any conflict amongst the werewolves is a victory for the Wyrm. Naturally, there are many who disagree to this, and this law is often hotly debated amongst individual Garou and even packs within a sept. Ultimately, the law does not state what war is, nor does it declare what sort of challenge may be issued, and thus many clever Garou use this loophole to challenge a despotic leader in a physically harmless but nonetheless humiliating challenge that may resolve the issue of their leadership without any lasting harm. On the other side of the coin, a particularly insistent pack of Garou may each challenge a leader in turn until they are too weak to put up any resistance wearing them down until they can take leadership by force. This tactic may be employed for hostile takeovers of septs and cairns should roaming packs of Garou consider themselves superior wardens of such a place. The leader may not be challenged during wartime. To further elaborate on the previous point, it is considered bad form to actually argue against an alpha during conflict. Once the cards are on the table and the fight is being fought, the alpha's words are law even if individual Garou may disagree with it. In a sense, this is how the military operates. Lower-ranked Garou must simply trust that their leaders know more than what they do, or have a plan in mind that will save them, because if they begin to question, or even go against these orders, everything can come falling down like a house of cards. Sometimes orders are just wrong, though. The Alpha may have underestimated the enemy's strength, or overestimated their own, or perhaps the situation changes and the Alpha's orders no longer take the current battlefield into account. 
At such times, some Garou decide to go against their orders and end up saving the day. But even if that's the case, the Garou consider insubordination during battle a grave offense, and while they may be excused, after a proper trial of course, because of the results from their actions, very few Garou who disobey orders can expect to earn any renown from their actions. The last litany stands universally uncontested by others. Ye shall take no action that causes a cairn to be violated. In the modern nights, the cairns are rapidly dwindling in numbers, either abandoned due to a lack of available guardians, or outright destroyed due to humanity's progress. Thus, no Garou would ever threaten the safety of a cairn unless they were swayed to do so by the worm, and at such point, they would most likely be hunted down by the others and slain for their crime. Even if this is done unintentionally, the punishment will be quite severe. The Garou do not deal out punishment like a human society would. There are no werewolf prisons, no fines to be paid, although community service might be one form of lighter punishment for crimes that do not warrant more severe retribution. Generally, it requires a severe breach of the litany for a Garou to be condemned on the spot. Usually they are given a fair hearing after the event in question in order to defend themselves and to stand judgment before a proper tribunal. It is often the case that the Philodox, the half-moons, are the ones who judge members of their sept, for theirs is the role of the judge and mediator in disputes. Yet even so, it is not uncommon for the Arun to rule in matters concerning war, as they are perceived to be the authority on such matters, and some septs may form a jury of peers from Garu of the same auspice as the defendant, or even choose one member of each auspice so that the matter may be perceived from all perspectives. The tribes handle these things differently as well. Some of the more physically inclined tribes, the Get of Fenris and Red Talons coming to mind, tend to resolve issues with the trial by combat, giving the defendant an opportunity to prove their worth that way. Others conduct elaborate hearings where each of the parties voice their thoughts on the matter, employing their speechcraft, sometimes with a dash of subterfuge to win the argument. The Shadow Lords are experts in this field. The more spiritually inclined tribes, such as the Yuktina, may summon up spirits of justice to determine the guilt of the offender, and the Glasswalkers may resort to a full-on criminal procedure, mimicking human society. These are, of course, broad strokes, and most septs tend to be uh, of mixed tribes these nights, so the first matter in every trial will be to decide how it should be conducted. A Garou may be given any of a wide range of punishments. Loss of renown is a common judgment for minor infractions, as is the aforementioned community service, which usually comes at a manageable but uncomfortable expense of the offender. Larger crimes may result in death or banishment, a punishment worse than death to many Garou. A banished Garou, or Ronin, is excluded from the Garou nation, forced to walk alone in atonement of their crimes. They have no friends, no safe haven, and only through great deeds and sacrifices may they regain their honor in the eyes of their former peers, if that ever happens. With the apocalypse around the corner, and the Garou ever fewer in numbers, laws and rules need to be reinterpreted lest the warriors of Gaia waste their time and energy on trivialities when the enemy grows stronger. Yet the sad truth is that even now, as Gaia draws her final labored breaths, her children squabble over proper decor and rights, were they to unite, she might stand a chance, yet the discord between the tribes seems almost an inevitability. The four grandchildren of Cain wait patiently for the time of judgment to arise. Snow, wise beyond his years and powerful in his compassion. Bambi Parsons, a leader with an unbreakable will. 
Dr. Sheepington, whose wisdom, like the ocean, is deep and broad beyond our understanding, and Dugal, whose thirst for blood is matched only by his strength of will and purpose. Their childhood, the Methuselah, control our every move through their timeless jihad. They are her satanic majesty Danny, whose mere presence chills the heart, Maximilian as Hardcastle, tutor of countless Ventru in the art of the jihad, Socrates Johnson, a masterful craftsman of stories, Lauren Eason, a trustworthy ally and friend, the observant and calculative Procyon, the unemployed writer whose words have guided nations, as well as Alexander Kanehurst, inquisitive explorer of the world of darkness. On the Council of the Primogen are seated Edward Reed, Colin Gifford, Zero Six, Ian Nichols, The Black Friar, Ravenfang, Brett Hardwick, Pilgrim, and Get of Mathrocks, wise leaders and of good judgment. Joining the Council tonight is Michelle Light, who brings with her knowledge and the ever precious flicker of hope in these trying times. This week, the Council will wish to thank the Elder Remy Van Roy for his continued support. Thank you so much, my friend. We would also wish to thank the NCLA Harry Wyckoff for remaining ever vigilant and at attention. Naturally, all our elders, NCLA, and neonates receive our gratitude from the bottoms of our hearts. Without your support, this would not be possible. And thank you for watching. The full moon rises and Gaia's warriors strike out into the night. Tremble, servants of the Wyrm.